The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with an old buddy of mine who taught me almost everything I don't know and a lot of things I do know. His name is Ron Irwin. Ron Irwin is a writer for Examiner.com. He's based in Burbank, California. Ron, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be back with you, Al. Now, Ron, we know each other going back about, oh, I don't know, 17 years or so when I was a little bit younger and in need of a job and you gave me one. I'm sorry, but it turned out okay in the end. I just wanted to give our audience a little bit of a personal history of how you and I met and how our paths have come together. Very simple. One day I'm minding my business in my little office here in Burbank and some guy walks in and says, hi, I'm Ellis Martin. And I'm like, okay. And we started talking and one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, we were doing things together. We were working on doing promotional stuff and public relations things and had a public company that we were working with, had an actual studio right in the office. We had a lot of fun. And I knew nothing about the world of public relations at the time. I was an out of work actor and radio person. And you really taught me quite a bit. I learned how to promote anything that really needed the, the word was exposed. You gave me a job right away. We started making money together and playing golf and traveling the world, and it was a, a bunch of fun back in the late 90s. Yeah, that's true. We did do a little bit of traveling. We did play a little bit of golf. It was a lot of fun. I won't talk about Tahiti, but there are a lot of things that we did that were absolute blast. <laughs> I'll always not have Bora Bora. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll just leave yeah, that out. We'll... The world will have to take it to the grave. Now, you've written a couple of books lately. The one I have on my screen is Hollywood on Stage. A critical review by Ron Irwin. Now, after yeah. we parted ways professionally, you went off and began doing entertainment reviews for The Examiner. Tell us about well, that. Well, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing because my daughter, who, by the way, Carrie, just got into USC. Some years ago now, she did the thing that so many daughters do to their parents. She looked at me with her big, beautiful, smiling eyes and said, Daddy, I'm going to be an actress. And I'm like, in Burbank? Why? <laughs> Anyhow, being as it may, uh, the girl was very driven, very committed, and good. And so I thought, well, I can do PR and things like that, but how else can I help my daughter? And I said, well, you know that in the world of entertainment, it's not so much what you know, but who you know. And what better way to get to know a bunch of people than to start writing critical reviews, right? True. And so I did. And one thing led to another, and now she's pretty much put the acting on hold till she gets the academics out of the way. But I'm still writing the reviews, and I've met a lot of people in the industry. You know, interestingly enough, Al, when I was doing talk radio about 4,000 years ago, right after Marconi came along, the first interview I did of a celebrity was a, a little kid that had just come back from doing a movie in Australia. His name was Mel Gibson, 
it was just fun. I was never the kind of guy that went, oh my God, it's, it's Mel Gibson. It was like, yeah, guy had a story. It was interesting. From there, it, it became simple to talk to interesting people. It's, it's easy. Even before you started doing, let's say, financial radio or PR, you were doing these interviews. In fact, I saw Charlton Heston walk out of your studio one day, and I'm, I'm wondering, how did that happen? Yeah, that happened because of a good old friend by the name of Dick Spangler. Charlton Heston and Dick Spangler worked together on a movie, and they maintained friendship, and why not? This stuff happens, and we go, look where we live. We're in Southern California, and things like this happen and it's fun it's if, if you take the right attitude it's fun so anyhow this book hollywood on stage a critical review the main focus of it is to introduce people who care to the legitimate theater that is so abundant in la you think of theater you think of broadway right which is true if somebody says hollywood your first thing's going to be film and tv there's probably somewhere north of 300 stages in the greater Southern California area that are active at any given time. Many of them are little 99-seaters or little black box stages. Of course, you have the Pantages and the Amundsen, but there's lots of them, and a lot of them actually have really good acting and really good stories and really good presentations. It's amazing. So what did you do to prepare to write this book? Spent six years writing it. It's an accumulation of a lot of my reviews with dialogue between it, talking about how things happen and people I met and so forth. It really does acquaint those who don't know with the legitimate theater of Southern California in a way that I don't think has ever been done before. Who's the target here? Pretty much anybody that has any interest whatsoever in the stage. There's even a couple of silly film reviews. I'll give you an example because it's only natural that I do occasional movie reviews too. Why not? And Last year, if you remember around Christmas, there was that big Sony hack hoax thing that went on. Yep. Notice I added the word hoax. My honest opinion of that, about the interview, in my humble opinion, one of the worst movies ever made. And if you understand anything about history, and I spent a lot of time in Asia, so the Koreans and the Japanese, for a multitude of good reasons, don't much like each other. And I'm thinking that when the CEO of Sony Pictures realized that he had a dog with fleas on his plate and that they had put tens of millions of dollars into this film that had pretty close to zero chance of making any money, he said, I have an idea. Let's fake a Korean hack on Sony, and that will get more press and more media and more attention to this terrible movie than anything else we could possibly do. And it did. But why would they want to expose their executives at the same time? I'm not sure they did. I think they made it look like it, but really, how many heads rolled? And interestingly enough, it started to evolve towards the end of the conversation to a suspicion of a former employee being involved. And then when that came up, everything just disappeared. The whole story went off the plate, except... Ron Irwin's story, which was, uh-uh, this is a scam, and whoever did the PR on it deserves a million-dollar bonus because it was brilliant. Did you release that review or that story right away when the movie came out on, I would say, not in theaters, but downloadable for 20 bucks a shot? I think it came out at about the same time, and I think the majority of the world doesn't care, but I had fun <laughs> writing it. <laughs> so, you know, we move on. But it was that, and then, of course, early in the new year, there was The Imitation Game, which is one of the best movies ever made. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see it, but it was an excellent film. Now, Ron, I did not have an opportunity to see it yet, although I received it because I'm a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And as an actor with a theater background, I never knew 
L.A. as a theater town, much as, like you mentioned. What's your experience between community theater and, let's say, equity theaters? Everything that I see is usually equity waiver, 99-seat black box stuff, although, obviously, I've been to the Pantages and the Amundsen, and they're full bore on. I don't know exactly what you're saying by community theater, if you mean something like associated with a junior college or that kind of thing. I guess you've answered my question. These are nice people that have a career, and they, they want to occasionally dip their feet onto the boards and, and do an acting gig just because there's a lot of that yeah. i've discovered that the the people that are severe actors can't help themselves if they became neurosurgeons and they'd still have to go do a play because it's a passion nothing wrong with that very rarely do people go from a black box stage to a lead role in a hollywood feature and they don't care they do what they love and you never know that you're not going to be seen in one of these theaters in la by people in the business that might be scouting or looking for someone to bring to their project it's possible but it's somewhat frankly a bit of a long shot you know honestly what it takes is first of all talent and not everybody that has a passion for acting necessarily has the depth of talent then the next thing it takes is a total focus i mean i'm going to do this and i'm going to go about it every way yeah sure you should get a good agent probably should not worry much about a manager until you have something to manage and You should be working your butt off. You should not only be using your agent, you should be networking in every possible way. You should be maybe going on some of these online things like LA Casting and Actors Access. Odds of getting something really good off of that is frankly pretty rare, but it's yet another tool. It's hard work. It's probably easier being a neurosurgeon. Not so easy to get the gig, but once you're there, it's hard work, but it's a passion. If you love it, you got to do it. Did you always want to be involved when you were a young man in Chicago? Did you always want to be involved in some capacity? in Hollywood, either as a reviewer, an actor. What brought you out to California? What brought a lot of guys out to California? I got divorced and wanted to get as far away from it as I could. (laughs) Actually, my first many years here, I used to drive up and down Olive and Barham and thought those big buildings over there were storage. I didn't know it was Warner Brothers. Didn't care. One experience when I was 11 years old, I did a magic show, one stupid trick in a tiny, tiny theater. And It was okay. I got a little applause. I walked off the stage and said, I'm never going on a stage again. And I've been true to my word. But yet you got behind a microphone. Simple. You only have to look at an engineer. I didn't care. I'm looking through glass at some guy twirling knobs. It's not a problem. But when I'm staring at other living souls right near me, staring back at me, that freaked me out. But when you're a thespian, you love it. That's a charge. I get it. It's just not my charge. I don't mind doing talk radio. It's fun. Oh, you were very good at it. One of the things that I noticed about your procedure, if, if, I, can use procedure? That, if yeah. I can use that word, is that you could pretty much get two or three lines about, let's say, a company that needed some exposure or promotion, and you could tell the story. There was no preparation involved, whereas I, to this day, I've got to put my head into the website. I've got to learn about the company. I've got to script my questions, and I have to edit after the fact. There's really okay. no improv involved in what I do, but with you, it sounds as if you've been over to dinner with some of the CEOs of these companies, and it was a very natural way of bringing in an audience. Well, thank you. I'm obviously an accomplished BSer, but where that... Oh, you know what? Actually, I do know where that came from. Ever represent somebody in a courthouse in front of a jury who is guiltier than hell, and yet you got to say something really stupid, like if it don't fit, you got to acquit and get away with it? So that technique of yours came from law. Yeah. Fascinating. Is that something you, you were got, taught? You got 12 people sitting in a jury box looking at this guy that stabbed his buddy 11 times, and you got to go, hey, come on, no one's perfect. Uh, 
you know, there could have been a mistake here. We're not 100% certain. Certainly none of us were there. We didn't witness it ourselves. And the evidence is not 100% conclusive. And by gummy, I think we got a lot of reasonable doubt. <clears throat> okay, thank you. And literally, you didn't need to know much about a company. And I've seen you do it. Certainly, yeah. it was over 15 years ago. But I would hand you a couple of notes on a on new client. You'd go as if they were your new best friend or old best friend. Just well, an amazing feat. And that's what you do in the courtroom? There's a little bit more preparation. But, you know, at the end of the day, I never represented a client ever that was guilty. And I never represented a client ever that got convicted. How could you tell if somebody was guilty or not? Was that part of your training as well? No, they don't train you for that. Well, sometimes they actually told me, but usually I said, there's certain things I don't want to know. But there is an attorney-client privilege anyhow. So usually if the cops walk in and the guy is standing there with the bleeding dagger and there's a sliced up body on the floor, that's fairly strong evidence. (laughs) (laughs) But we can spin it. (laughs) By the way, for those people who are going, yeah, I knew the court system's corrupt. Come up with a better plan. It's not perfect. Absolutely not perfect, but come up with a better plan. And every time I criticize the legal system, which is easy enough to do, and I ask myself the same question, I'm still waiting to come up with the better plan. You could do it the ISIS way. We don't like you, so bend over while we cut your head off. How's that? When I met you, you were probably twice my waist size, and now you are my waist size. You died, came back, and your life changed. Let's talk about the book that you put out just about a year ago, I think, a year and a half ago. Yeah, about that. Live, die, live again, because I have no real imagination, so I came up with that because that's what it was. On December 18, 2012, I stood up from my desk, turned around, Thought I had something caught in my throat. It took me about a half a second to realize that that wasn't it. And I was starting to fade to black. And before I went totally black, I did have the strength to dial 911 send into the phone. And that was my last conscious memory for several days. I had congestive heart failure. The Burbank EMTs, God bless them, they're the best. They found me. When you have CHF, your lungs will fill with fluid. And when your lungs fill with fluid, of course, you're not breathing. And when you're not breathing and then the heart quits, you're dead. The brain's still working, but it's fading. They got it all relit and got me over, put me in ICU. And after 26 days, I left. I was a wreck, but I was told I had four wonderful things I had to concern myself with. Heart failure, diabetes, and obesity. And then a month after getting out of the hospital, they said, oh, by the way, we've run some more tests and you also have cancer. I said, you know, you are piling on. I made a decision that I wanted to beat all that. I started exercising regularly. I started eating a lot less meat and a lot less of everything. Between the exercise and the diet, I shed 140 pounds. I'm in much better shape. So you're about six feet tall and you weigh, what, one. 65? Yeah, well, you know, I found that life was better than death. I was fully expecting to run into the guy with the red suit and the horns and stuff. Not him, no harps, nothing. It was just fade to black. But Ellis, as interesting as this book is, because it's kind of my life story, it really displays all of the insanity that brought me to where I was, including my early life, leaving home at age 11, joining the Marines, volunteering to go to Vietnam because I obviously had no intellectual capacity. Just a bunch of stuff, being a lawyer, being a pilot, doing these things. But at the end of the day, what ultimately mattered, and this is why if you read that book, you get to the end, the last paragraph or two, really is the whole story. You know what it's about? Love. The love I felt from my family in that hospital was unbelievable. I could not remember anything like it ever before. My wife, my daughters, my sons, my grandchildren were coming in there. I felt it. Third or fourth day in ICU, even though I was in a coma, some doctor came in and had the audacity to say to my family, if he survives, 
he'll have to go to a home. That pulled the trigger, and I said, screw you, this isn't happening. So they got me up into a wheelchair, and after a day of that, I said, I don't want to be in a wheelchair. So I pushed it. I stood behind it and pushed it. Then they gave me a walker, and I said, hell no, I don't want to look like every other old guy in Burbank. I gave up the walker. Then I started bouncing off walls for a while, and finally I said, okay, I'm good enough. I'm out of here. Goodbye. So love really is the message. Yeah, after all the BS, a whole life of BS, I finally felt a level and a type of love I had never really understood before. What are you doing differently since before you died? Other than just having a much better inner peace, really appreciating very deeply my wife and daughters and grandchildren. That's a pretty big change. I mean, they were always important to me, but they were always there. Now they're, thank you, God, they're there. Do we need to go through what you went through to have that realization? I don't think so. But you see, you got to understand, when you come from a tortured life, you got to have something to change it. My mom and dad were uniquely mismatched, and it was abundantly clear to me as a child. And it was painful, but what do you do about it? When you're three, four, five, six years old, what do you do? Nothing. You're just there. You're a victim, in effect. And this isn't to put down my parents. They were themselves. Who knows what their history was? They did the best they could do in their lives. I've been far from a perfect human being and still am, but I felt a very powerful message of familial love. That brought a sense of peace to me that I have never known before. How can we find the book, and how can we find the latest book that you've written, Hollywood on Stage, a critical review by Ron Irwin? The easiest way to do either is you can go to Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, or even better, just go to Lulu.com and type in my name, Ron Irwin, and you'll see everything I've written, and you'll have a choice in most cases between hard copy book or paperback book or digital download. So the latest one hasn't been digitized yet, but the others are. So three or four bucks, you can have the book, and that's it. And how can we read your reviews? Just go to examiner.com and type in Ron Irwin, and then you can subscribe, and the subscription's absolutely free. I've been speaking with my friend and mentor, Ron Irwin. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, sir. Good talking with you. I've been speaking with entrepreneur, author, pilot, photographer, and fellow talk show host, Ron Irwin. His website is ronsworld.co. This segment can be heard again, as well as the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson. President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a brief summary of the business of Oncolytics Biotech. Well, Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company solely focused on developing therapies for cancer. The technology that we're using is to use a live agent, in this case a virus, to treat a variety of different cancers. It's sort of a leading edge new wave in, in oncology today to use viruses, and there's 
probably five or six different companies now looking at different viruses for the treatment of cancer. Now, there are so many different cancers, but I'd like to dedicate this particular broadcast on pediatric cancer. How many children across North America and maybe across the world are afflicted with cancer each year that you're aware of? Well, there's probably between 10 and 12,000 children in the United States every year under the age of 15 that come down with cancers. So if you extrapolate that to worldwide, that probably means around 50,000 children every year. So it's significant from perspective of the children involved, but children really don't get cancer that often. But the unfortunate part of childhood cancers is that they tend to be quite serious. So you don't tend to have that kind of benign, in-between kind of cancers that adults get. When children get cancer, it becomes a very serious issue. And we've actually made a lot of progress on survival rates. 40 years ago, the five-year survival rate was just a little over a half. So if you had a child, they had a very poor prognosis. That's over 80% now, five-year survival. But that still means an example of the United States that you probably have close to 1,500 children every year in the United States dying of cancer. That's not an acceptable number, obviously. Now, as far as early detection, if these children are so young, how do you detect specific kinds of cancer? Or does it depend on the cancer? It depends very much on the cancer. I mean, we have concentrations of cancers. There's quite a few leukemias, you know, non-solid tumors, type cancers, that are bloodborne, and they're more difficult to detect early. You typically get them later, but that's one of the areas we've had the best success in. There's been great advances in treating childhood leukemias, which is marvelous. It was a death sentence before, and now it's not. Some of the other cancers are a little more difficult to detect. Sarcomas, which are uh, soft tissue or bony tumors are more common in children and they tend to be not detected early enough to have very simple therapies. And of course, the one that is most germane to oncolytics is brain cancers and they tend to be detected actually fairly late. The external symptoms that you get with brain cancers usually only manifest themselves when the cancer is fairly advanced. That was going to be my question to you. When you're talking about a brain tumor or brain cancer, there's, I would imagine, very little early detection involved. And by the time you've diagnosed it, you've got to treat it. And perhaps it's stage two or stage three cancer. This is a very, very dicey area. So you're beginning at least a phase one study in pediatric patients with brain tumor. Can you give us some kind of possible hope as to how this disease may be treated in the future using oncolytics technology? Well, children are an extra complication in cancer therapy because the agents that have been historically used attack rapidly growing cells in the body. Radiation, chemotherapy, they tend to be toxic to cells that just grow rapidly. And that's really all cancer is, a cluster of out of control cells growing. But when you think about a child, a child is all rapidly growing cells when they're young. I mean, the nervous system in a child it grows so quickly, it's hard to keep track of, I mean, as an example. So when you have tumors in the central nervous system, what do you do about that? I mean, are you going to radiate that? I'm not very commonly no. Are you going to treat the child with chemotherapy? Well, no, because I mean, the toxicity associated with that is very difficult. It's very heartbreaking, honestly, when you get a child coming in with a brain tumor and because of the tools that we normally use in adults just aren't really that applicable to the children. That's further complicated by the fact that a lot of the brain cancers in children are deep down in the brain in the lower part and that's the part of the brain that controls breathing and it controls all the autonomic functions and surgery really isn't an option either so you have these five to ten year old children coming in with cancers all the available tools just aren't there for you and so the approach that we're taking with this particular cancer is to take two very safe therapies that don't rely on those mechanisms of action and that being in this case GMCSF which is a white blood cell extender it's commonly used in patients after they've had radiation or chemotherapy to restore their white blood cell populations in their body. And combining that with Realicin, which we've done a 
preliminary pediatric cancer study and it's been shown to be very safe in, in patients. I mean, they get a mild fever and they feel tired for a day or two is, is really the only side effects. And combining those two together to treat patients and the hope is that we'll be able to have a treatment that is very benign and also can have the effects that we want, which is to treat their cancer and just bypass all the kind of heartbreaking decisions to treat or not to treat with the current standards of care. You used a term called reolysin, which is a proprietary term with regard to oncolytics. And again, let's talk about what a reovirus is and what reolysin is so that our listeners new to the program can understand what's unique about oncolytics biotech and the technology. Well, the virus that we're using, its technical name is reovirus. And there's three strains of it. And we're using the third strain. So we're using reovirus type three. And it's a very commonly found in the environment type of virus. Most people by age five have some evidence of being exposed to the virus. Almost all adults have been exposed to the virus. It's part of a growing number of viruses that, yes, they're viruses, but they actually don't cause diseases. Certainly people in the field think that probably most viruses don't cause, you know, the ones that we study, of course, are the ones that cause disease, and that's rightfully so. So you've got this relatively safe or safe virus that's present in the environment, and it just happens to actually only grow in cells that have genetic defects that are linked to cancer cell populations. And so you just have this very elegant solution handed to us by nature for a potential problem, which being this case being cancer. Of course, taking it from being present in the environment and taking it all the way through all the safety and efficacy and all the development, how do you make it kind of issues is being what Doncolytics has been doing since its inception. But it's a very interesting area in that all the viruses that are being tested in oncology, and there's quite a few of them now, all have many of the same elements. They're quite safe. They're quite targeted. They use different mechanisms of action than traditional older therapies. When the clinical trials start, how are you going to inform the population of the public that's afflicted that you're available? The best place for any patient to find out about any clinical trial that's running in the United States is to go to uh, clintrials.gov, so www.clintrials.gov, where there's a complete listing of most, or in some cases all, depending on the time of the year, clinical trials that are undergoing in the United States. And all I have to do is type in the keyword reolysin and it'll give an entire list of clinical studies that are currently enrolling in the United States and this particular study is up on ClinTrials. It's got the contact information. People can just contact the site directly to see if they can get onto a clinical study. Brad, what can we look forward to during the next 6 to 12 months with regard to rolling out additional trials or technology? What can we say to potential shareholders? Well, we're really entering a really, I think, exciting stage of development with this particular product and there's really two paths that we're looking at. One, I would expect in the very near future, people will be hearing about what our final first choices for registration studies. So the, the last step to get the product approved kind of studies will be that we're hoping to do that in this quarter or early next quarter. And then those are very important milestones for people to be aware of. In behind that, you're going to be seeing us announcing a number of new study initiatives like the one we did this week, which is looking particularly at the immune system, sort of two prongs of attack on that. One is looking at boosting the immune system, which is this GMCSF a real license combination and we're planning on doing that in an adult population as well as the announced pediatric indication. And on the other side, looking our initial studies, looking at checkpoint inhibitors, which is the current rage in oncology. And these drugs actually remove the blinders, if you want to think of that way, from your immune system. Sometimes your immune system is blinded to a tumor, so it can't actually see it. And if it could see it, it can get rid of it. And these new drugs, which are all in the class called checkpoint inhibitors, actually remove that blinding, if you want to think of it that way, and allow the immune system to see it. In relation to your research, which attacks the cancers once they're in place, what kind of preventative techniques 
technology have you discovered along the way? And is that something the company's going to get involved with, especially when it relates to something like pediatric brain cancer? Well, the whole area of what people would normally think of as prophylactic therapy, treating people before they have a disease, absolutely intriguing. And we have spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. I mean, if you have an agent that's safe, and that's the key thing, then you can think about treating people before they have an external manifestation of the disease. When they have a few cancer cells floating around someplace, it would be the ideal time to treat a patient. And so if an agent's safe, like real life, then you start thinking about being able to use it as a prophylactic agent. And we've done that in animals in particular. So the question is, how do you translate that into human use? And that is where the problem comes with prophylactic. How do you prove you're preventing cancer in very large patient populations? And that's just a very daunting task for any company, much less the company the size of Oncolytics, which is a fairly small company. But I think it's possible. And I think there's agents like Realison should be able to be used in that indication. But it's just getting over the developmental hurdle about how do you actually prove it. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you very much. Hope you have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trending on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. Go to the website right now, ellismartinreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. as WGPLF and on the TSX as WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest-cost open-pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer, appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, you sent me an article for a discussion on this particular segment. It's on the BeaumontEnterprise.com website. Texas Governor Abbott signs a law creating Texas depository for state gold. And according to this article, there's talk of repatriation with regard to Texas gold from the Federal Reserve in New York back to Texas. Well, first of all, if we go back a few steps, we will know that Texas basically started buying gold for some of their pension funds. They were one of the leaders in getting the gold at what I consider the right time or early on. They were taking gold, physical. This was something that they were leading in, adjusting that other pension funds, hedge funds, which have done it, take a look at this and use gold as part of their portfolio. There's a report done by BMG Group, Bullion Management Group of Canada, Toronto, Nick Baryshev and company that paid for a study by Ibbotson and Associates. And they did a portfolio analysis. And this is totally objective. These guys have nothing to do with being biased one way or the other. And they found that in current circumstances that the best portfolio performance would be by having 15% precious metals allocation in physical metal. This is not in mining stocks. This is in physical form. And I made big use of that study and tried several times to get into the professional investment community, the paid financial planners. I mean, some financial planners, you actually go to them and you pay them a fee and they work on your behalf and other financial planners, you don't pay a fee, but they get a commission on what they sell you or tell you to put in your portfolio. And almost none of them put you into gold 
which is really unfortunate because it's really a requirement as far as I'm concerned, but particularly in the financial uncertainty realm that we have right now. You know, there's a lot of discussion about gold being a inflation hedge or a deflation hedge. It's really, I agree with Doug Casey, it's a crisis hedge. You know, whatever you think of Martin Armstrong, what he says is it's really gold is a bet against government. In other words, government failures are when gold really go. That's probably the fundamental biggest push for gold is that when governments fail, that means their monetary systems fail, their ability to create debt and have it monetized fails, and then there's this run to gold. Gold is very important. Texas has recognized that very early. Then they've recognized the fact that they don't have it in their hands. They're trusting this quasi-banking system, the Federal Reserve, that said that they had it, and then we get news that, no, actually the Federal Reserve Bank in New York doesn't have the gold because last month gold was reported to be vaulted at HSBC in New York. It looks like they don't even know where the gold is, and I'm trying to make light of this, but it's hardly light. It's rather concerning, to put it in polite terms, because you know, when you own it, you should be able to get it whenever you want it type of thing. And of course, we know from various times over the last few years that that's not necessarily the case. Is the Texas Republic hedging against the United States government and the Federal Reserve? I wouldn't go that far, although I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't say no. What I would say is that they're being very conservative, as they should be. When it comes to gold, if you can't touch it, you don't own it. And so they've got a certificate that says they have this much gold vaulted at this such and such bank and here are the serial numbers on the bars. That's probably what they have as a minimum. But they're saying, you know what? We have the right. We own it and we're going to store it. We don't need your vaulting. We don't need to pay a storage fee anymore. Send it over. We've got our own vault. Give it to us, which they have every right to do. And so to me, this is the beginning of a bank run. Well, I wouldn't say the very beginning, but it's a continuation of a bank run, meaning a run on gold or a run to gold. Because a lot of people know that there's a lot more paper gold and paper silver that's in existence than there is physical reality. I mean, the paper paradigm does not meet the physical reality. And myself and many others have said, and I've said it basically from the early 2000s, that there would be a day at some point where those two don't match and because the mismatch is taking place and it becomes public knowledge that that would be the point where the credence in the paper markets would deteriorate and could deteriorate rapidly or basically overnight. Now, if that's a scenario, there could be other scenarios. But we've seen it happen in gold and really nothing's happened. In fact, gold is still at a very undervalued level right now. I mean, we had this Ambro, I think it was called, bank People had physical gold and they had the certs and they said, I want my physical gold. Nope, 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 nope. You can't have physical gold. You have to settle in cash. And then we have the German thing, which is a big debate because if you talk to like Jeff Christian, he said, well, Deutsche Bank really doesn't want the gold. And they said they wanted it over seven years. And then you hear other commentators say, no, the people want it sooner than that. Deutsche Bank is just playing the game of buddy-buddy to the banking cartel. There's confusion around that issue. And then now you have Texas saying, give us our gold. And then you had Venezuela and Venezuela got their gold. And now it looks like they're going to make a swap deal again with the banking institutions. But there has been this subtle, kind of under the radar, unless you're a gold bug and you visit shows like yours, that the general public has no idea that kind of under the radar, there are nation states, pension funds, states that are going in and asking for physical gold. In some cases, they're not receiving physical gold. They're getting paper promises instead. One of the leaders here was Utah. Utah passed legislation that allowed transactions to take place peer-to-peer, you know, person-to-person or store-to-person or business-to-business with gold and silver. I was actually there when the governor of Utah signed that legislation into law. The problem was that even though it's legal, it's law, it's very cumbersome because going into Walmart with some silver coins 
coins and saying, I want to buy this is just, and the law states it must be reciprocal. In other words, both parties agree. Well, most merchants aren't going to agree to take a silver coin. So that's where the idea to come up with a debit card that's backed by precious metals, I actually had that idea. It's not just mine. I'm sure others have thought of it, but I try to implement it without success. And then Dale Olmsted, who you've interviewed, did it here in Spokane. So it's transparent to the merchant and they're just running a plastic debit card like they have every day. And what they don't know is that the transaction is actually paid for in precious metals, if that's what the client desires. And this debit card that I'm referring to, you have the option of filling it with both cash and metal. And in my own personal case, I have the metal sitting there because it's at a higher paper price than the current price. But I have a cash side like any debit card. So when I use my debit card, I just draw down the cash at the same rate I would with any debit card. So it functions just like any debit card out there in the paper paradigm. But I have the option when silver is at a higher level to spend my silver to shop with it, buy with it, or spend it. That's one of the biggest questions I've received over the years is, well, I really trust you, it or believe you or think I should have some precious metals, but what do I do with it? How do I get rid of it? I don't know what, you know, it's a big concern for a lot of people. Well, in this particular case, you basically spend it into uh, circulation. In other words, let's say you had a large account and you had a, a dorm payment payment for a quarter of college. You could, silver you bought, for an example, at 15 is now at 20. I know it's at 16 right now, but let's say, you know, we're talking in the past or whatever, and you could just spend it. There has to be a functionality that makes sense in today's modern electronic world. And the only way I know of that works is this debit card system that's backed by precious metals that's transparent to the merchant. There's a subtle run on gold. Texas is in there now. And it's going to be very interesting to watch this very closely to see what happens. How soon does Texas receive its gold, which I think it will. But what amount of time and what do the banks do before? Do they just pack it up and ship it through like Brinks or Garda or one of these trucking firms? that specializes in uh, valuables, precious metals, and truck it in there? Or do they make some big hoopla about this, that, and the other thing that has to be studied? But I'm very curious about this because this is the leaders starting to leave the ship. This is as a metaphor. These are the early awake people, and now it's a state. And you know, there's been banks, as I said earlier, that are starting to say, you know what? I know the gold is supposed to be there, but mm, I want to have it send it to me. And once that starts, there'll be more. It starts with one, then it's two, then it's five, then it's 10, then it's 25, and then it's 50. And all of a sudden, there's a run on gold. And that run on gold is something that they can't afford. Same thing could happen in the silver market. Silver is a much smaller market. The silver is much more dependent really on the average person. We've had record highs in the silver market on the coin side last year. And we, the uh, Morgan Report, are going to be doing a special for our members. And I think we're going to invite some of the public for free as well. A special report on the two silver studies that just came out. And just go through those studies. Top level, but a in-depth enough level to get all the meat out of it, definitely, and served up to you in a manner that's really easy to understand because these studies, in my opinion, aren't written very clearly. But we ferret out everything and put it in a manner that's very direct and very kind of in your face and explain everything. And we're going to do that in a written report for all of our paid members. And then we're going to go into a video format and kind of not necessarily read it to them, but show them some of the documents 
documentation behind what we're talking about, and then our projections for what the true price of silver is currently and where we see the silver market going over the next few years. In fact, this is very important, and we have to watch closely to see what the next step is by the banks. The ball has been served very hard across the net to the bank saying, we've got a gold depository, send us our gold. Now it's your turn. Are you going to serve it back or are you going to let the ball fly by? I think for the first time in a long time, I see a clear path to fiat currency disappearing, at least as a currency, as we head down the road. I mean, if you want to look down the road 15, 20, 50 years when we're not really carrying cash anymore at all, how are you going to back up your currency? It would seem like the only way we could back it up is the way we would do it 100 years ago or 150 years ago. That's with gold. Are we going to see the current banking system fail or are we going to see it migrate into banks really being depositories of gold? Or something else. You've got really three scenarios. A collapse of the bond market, which is default. Then you have a default on the currency, which is basically an inflation or most referred to as a hyperinflation. Or you have some kind of repudiation of debt or compromise slash reset. A reset would be you're going to get 50 cents on dollar on your bonds and love it or leave it. That's the way it's going to be. And there's multiple scenarios within those three frameworks. I mean, there could be a bail-in where your deposits aren't yours, which they're not legally, and the bank, rather than bail out from the government, which is based on the people anyway, is just directly taken out of the people's bank account. I think there will be what we are seeing already, which is competing currencies. You've got Bitcoin, this bit gold that's just coming out. You have this uh, debit card that I just described. You're starting to see competition in this realm, and you will continue to see that. We're entering the era of competition to banks. In fact, there's a gentleman that I spoke with from Australia recently on a private consultation basis that's setting up a gold silver debit card. And the intermediary that had the conversation with me initially said that he didn't really want to get involved unless silver was in the equation. And it is. So that's where I think we're going. A lot of smart people are fed up with the system and they're looking for alternatives. And I would rather trust my money with this XYZ private entity and bank back it by gold and silver and have them hold it for me or part of it. And certainly I'm not recommending, you know, you store your gold anywhere. I mean, I'm a big proponent of if you don't touch it, you don't own it. But larger depositors that have the ability to store it and spend it, I mean, it has to be that way because you can't just, you could either spend it directly, obviously, which is difficult, or you could have it in a depository. And that's what I've recommended to people that are interested is you put a partial sum, something like you do with a checking account. I mean, you don't have your total net worth in your checking account or very few people do. You have what you need to go about your daily life. And the same thing here in a gold or silver depository, same situation. I think that's the main trend, Ellis. It's not going to be government entities that go to a gold back situation. I think it'll be outside the government realm into the private realm that will be competing with government money. I was at a meeting just a couple of days ago with a mining company here in Los Angeles. The mining company is a Canadian company, but they're here looking for investors. There was conversation about hedge funds in the Midwest, and those are some of the most conservative people and conservative bankers, uh, I mean private bankers, that I've ever run across. And they are moving into gold stocks at this time in this market, and they've never been 
been in gold stocks before. Absolutely. Well, the GDXJ or the little penny stocks, the junior mining companies, they're up about 18% from the end of March. And these companies are well under the radar of almost everybody. Even those that are in the resource sector have just pretty much thrown in the towel and given up. The HUI is up. I made the point recently that this is a very big deal because no one's talking about it, that the mining sector is actually showing strength. Now, it could be for a couple of reasons. One, it could be short covering, meaning that these guys, these entities, these bankers, these bullion banks, these hedge funds, et cetera, sovereign wealth funds, what have you, have been shorting the market for so long and been winning for so long that they decide to cover their shorts. That's buying pressure and that would rise the price. And the other is, as you say, very conservative people see the trend and the trend is that this can't go on forever and gold is a hedge against financial uncertainty. And again, backing up Martin Armstrong, it's against government failure. So they're moving into gold. It's probably both. I would say it probably it's some people that are smart enough that you know they're not looking for the last penny or the last drop or you know there's been a lot of talk about there's one more huge drop coming in the gold and silver market i am saying there's not but i've been wrong before but uh, a lot of people think there's one more drop coming there could be but trends currently is pretty strong that that is not the case. The metals stocks lead the physical in a bull market. And we're still in a bull market as far as I'm concerned, even though it's been hammered hard for four years, the overall macro picture is still up. So I think it's very important for your listeners to know that these mining companies are actually doing better than anyone would expect at this point in time, vis-a-vis the metals prices themselves. And that is the smartest money. And when you get conservative money, like you say, from the Midwest, which is probably the most conservative, salt-of-the-earth type, no-nonsense physical economy people that exist, at least in my experience, and they're there, and they're worried, and they're moving in the sector before most people are happy to do so again. It speaks volumes, really. Stay tuned. There's more to come in just a moment. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen Platinum is a Canadian mining exploration and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM and nickel project toward production. A 2015 economic assessment shows the Wellgreen project located in the Canadian Yukon to be potentially the second largest PGM producer outside Southern Africa and Russia with average annual production of over 200,000 ounces platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 128 billion pounds of nickel and copper from just 34% of the pit-constrained resource, making it possibly one of the largest in the world. Estimates show that once in production with assets near or at the surface, this low-cost producer may generate cash flow exceeding as much as $330 million per year. Situated along a major highway in a mining-friendly jurisdiction with an active market for PGMs and nickel, And with a strong management team, Wellgreen is certainly to be considered a candidate for your portfolio. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. You spoke of the macro picture, and and I'm just going to pick a target there and saying, well, the price of gold really, compared to 2004, 2005, 2006, is up. Even at almost $1,200, it's a significant price compared to several years ago. But yet the gap between the price of gold and mining stocks is huge, especially with some of these producers out there that haven't stopped production, but their margins have slipped because the price of production has not fallen down. The drilling crews and the the rigs and all that, there's still a demand for them. None of that's dissipated. So 
essentially, and that suppression may have gone on. There's other speculation that the suppression of gold was all about being able to buy gold cheaply. Some of these foreign governments like China and Russia concerns the Middle East are just really, they've worked to make sure that they can buy gold cheap. Maybe we can narrow this down a little bit. That springboard suppression, that's got to have a a jack-in-the-box effect at some point as attention comes back to gold, not as a trading commodity or gold stocks as a trading commodity, but as something you want to get into long term. Yes. The best leverage by far is in the mining sector right now, and particularly in the precious metals, because as I've said many times, the precious metals are the top tier of all the commodities because gold and silver are money. Regardless of what the mainstream says or what some analyst says, the historical record from before the Bible onward is that that's what people have voted as money, regardless of the fact that cattle was once and salt was once and all this other stuff. Sure, that's a fact. But the truth is that nothing has surplanted gold and silver as money worldwide for the longest period of time. In other words, the vote is in gold and silver reign. I don't care what anyone else says. That's a fact. So that's number one, that the best way to leverage that is through the mining sector. That doesn't discount the fact that I've always explained to everyone that you should have the physical metal first because it's outside the matrix. There's no counterparty risk when you own a gold and silver coin. It's not in the banking system. It's not in the brokerage system. It's not dependent upon anyone other than you and whoever you are going to transact with. So that doesn't change. But as far as getting the most bang for the buck, it's certainly in the mining sector. Well, there's nothing else to really leverage, is there? We were talking about Texas in this broadcast and in a previous broadcast where energy is sort of deleveraging or it has been at the moment. You know, what's happened in the real estate market, really, where else is there to go? Well, I think the days of leverage are ending. That's the problem with the system is it's it's an exponential function. And the ability of the average person to understand what an exponential function is, is waning. Most people don't really understand that, but they do understand what a hockey stick looks like, and they do understand that nothing grows to the moon. And so when you see any commodity, silver included, go into that kind of a parabolic uptrend, you know it can't last forever. And that's the debt bomb that we talk about in the Silver Manifesto. And that is something that people need to understand and almost everyone listening to this channel do. But that's only maybe 1% or 2% of the population. There's this 98% that still think that the bond market is the best place to be. And the bonds are the safest place you can be. Well, that was the best trade you could make from 1980. I mean, the 30-year bond getting like 17% locked in and then as interest rates go down, the value of the bond goes up. Are you kidding? What could be better than that than a guaranteed government payment of 17% year over year for 30 years and the price of your principal goes up and up and up and up and up. Are you kidding? But there are people that are in that position and they're so locked into that paradigm they can't see it. And what you can see clearly now is that nothing grows to the moon and that the ability of these governments to pay for those bonds are impossible. It's mathematically impossible. So again, the choices are, well, we'll give you your currency, but it'll be worthless or near worthless. We'll either or we'll reset it or the bond market will crash and the value will be determined by the market once again. And that huge capital gain that you have in the bonds will not be nearly as large or maybe it'll go negative. Or they could halt the markets. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen. I mean, these people are desperate at this point in time. And it's my very 
studied view that they really don't know what to do. They think they have all these tools available. They think they can control everything and everyone. But if you know anything about chaos theory, that's an impossibility. Long-term capital management proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Go rent the movie Trillion Dollar Bet and watch it again. You're going to get a foretaste of what's going to happen, not just when the Russians defaulted on their bonds. Government failure, gold went up. Gold, you know, I, I like what Armstrong said. I mean, I know I've said it three times in the interview, but it's something that one of the guys that writes for Stratfor wrote a book. I forget the title of it. I want to give him credit. But, you know, I basically wrote a book saying, you know, things aren't that bad, that when things start going bad, the government comes in and rescues everybody. Look at General Motors. Look at this, that, and the other thing. It always happens. It's going to happen again. Life is great. A few years down the road, everything's going to be wonderful. We're going to have more prosperity than ever. Everybody's going to be richer. Everybody's going to be well-fed, blah, 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 blah. I mean, just happy, happy, smiley, smiley smiley face. And boy, I'd love to believe that. But I circled the basic premise. And his basic premise is that the government can come in and rescue everybody. Well, what he didn't say in the book, and I'll say loud and clear, is that governments fail. Governments fail. Let me say it again. Governments fail. Russia failed. Their ability to pay off their debt failed. And that was basically the end. So not that their wealth went away. It just was reorganized. Again, a reset. So this is what we're really facing, Ellis, and this is something that most people never even think of. I mean, they're so locked into the normalcy bias and the paradigm that the president has this kind of power and the Congress and whatever nation state they're in, that such and such, the authorities that rule over them can take care of things or maybe not take care of things, but they're under their power and their control, which they are to a certain extent. But what happens when that starts to break apart? Well, guess what? I mean, just take a good, hard, objective look. They are breaking apart. Look at the Arab Spring. That wasn't about banking. That was about food. That's pretty basic to the human experience. If you can't eat, you get pretty restless. So there's a lot going on that there's no one out there talking about in the mainstream. It's only shows like yours, Ellis, the people that you have on that will explain and really kind of laser focus at times. I know I speak in generalities in some instances and, and very focused in others to get the points across that the world you see that's painted by the mainstream is a total illusion. In fact, it's such an illusion, you have to basically be delusional to understand it. Delusion means the inability to recognize facts and reality for what they are. And so if you can't recognize the truth or the actual system as it stands for what it really is, and you just believe this holographic image that's painted by the TV set, the reality when it does break through will be a very big shock, and that's going to happen to a great many of the masses. Certainly may not be delusional right now to take a look at some mining stocks, and you've done that with the Morgan Report. Yeah, and I'll just add on to that. There's one that we're looking at that could be a real game changer in the small mining entities. It's a uh, company that I know well, I know the principles, and we, meaning me and my team, are going to go down and visit the working model. It would be a speculation, but this is kind of a wheel onto the facility, like a big RV, and it's a self-contained unit that can basically process gold or silver precious metals on demand, so to speak. So it would be really could be a game changer, again, for the small mining concerns. It's not going to change Newmont or RTZ or any of those. But these small guys that have fairly good quality, you have to have the real deal. You can't just have dirt. But if you've got good enough grade, you can roll this thing on and they're going to have a business model that's pending. So the idea is, when we carefully choosing my words here, they're like a 50-50 split or something along those lines where we will process it for you on site and we will 
we'll split the amount of gold, silver, whatever we get out of your facility. And this would be a way for the small companies to fund their operations again, because right now they can't get money. But if they've got gold, they've got silver, and they know it, and they sign a contract. So this is something I'm very excited about. Game changer. Yes, it is a game changer for the small company. I don't want to misstate this and get people excited. David said this, David said that. No matter how much I qualify it, someone's going to misinterpret it. But nonetheless, it's something that we want to see it before we write about it. And then if it works out reasonably well, and we'll film it, of course, because when you're a premium member of the Morgan Report, you basically go on these trips with us. I mean, we take a camera with us and we do a video and you are like, wow. I mean, I don't know who else in the industry does that, especially at the price of two sixty nine a year. I mean, most of the time, those type of services are in the 2000 to 5000 range. I'm kind of excited after being involved in this interview. There's a lot to look forward to and we could see perhaps a gold rush that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. And by that, I mean everyone pointing toward gold as an investment opportunity, the physical metal, the stocks, the silver as well, for a good reason, all of which we've discussed. David, thank you so much for joining us today in the program. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's a little different. It seems like interviews with you lately have been a little bit more in-depth, a little deeper. Sometimes I'm reluctant to do another interview type of thing because I seem like I'm repeating myself. But, you know, it depends on the interviewer sometimes on the right questions. There are so much to explore in the monetary world. And I feel that this was a worthwhile interview from the aspect that there was new information for everybody to. Some of it was repeat, obviously, you have to, but a lot of it was new, fresh, and perhaps meaningful to the public at large, which, of course, is something I'm concerned with. I do care about others and the way the world really works. And it works a lot better when we're open, honest, and sincere than the way things are operating currently with Big Brother at all. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. The preceding segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Trading in the U.S. is WGPLF and on the TSX is WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest cost open pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.